have your study guides. You were given those when you came in, I hope, so you can uh, use those as a, as a guide through today's message. Um, also, if you don't have a Bible with you, those study guides have the scriptures I'll be reading in them, so you can use those. If you have a Bible with you, thank you um, uh, for playing along with my little experiment, trying to see how many non-religious Houstonians I can get to bring their Bibles to church with them, um, but uh, slowly but surely, we'll get there. But um, the, if you don't have a Bible, Bible, you can use the Bible app. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can uh, take one on your way out. We've got tons of them, free gifts, right there at the Connect table. So we're studying Jacob, and my, my warning to you is just the reality that the more you learn about Jacob, the less you're going to like him. He's just not a very likable guy. He's one of those guys that you'd just get, you'd get sick of him. You'd get tired of his games. He knows what he wants, and he's not afraid to step on people to, to get it. He manipulates. He takes advantage. He twists the truth. He tells lies, hurts people. And it, it's a pattern for him. And the easy thing to do when you have a Jacob in your life, whether it's this Jacob in the Bible, or whether it's somebody you actually know in real life, or whether it's you, maybe you're Jacob, who knows, but the easy thing to do with a Jacob is just to say, screw this, like, he's a bad, he's a bad guy. He's a bad person, and I'm done. You're a bad person. It's an easy thing to say to somebody. You're just bad. You're rotten to the core, corrupt. I'm done. And in some cases, that just needs to be said. I understand not every relationship can be salvaged, and not every relationship should be. But whether or not you salvage a relationship, it can be very worthwhile, although it's hard work, to ask other questions other than just, why are you such a bad person? Like, what circumstances led to this? You know, who hurt you? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like, what happened that, that got you to this place in life where you just keep everybody at arm's length, you deceive, you lie, you manipulate everything? Like, those things don't happen in a, in a vacuum. As we said before, broken people break people, hurting people hurt people, all that is true. And so as we look at Jacob more closely, we're going to take a little step back and just kind of peel some of those layers back to try and figure out how this man, whose name was deceiver, that's what Jacob means literally, his mama called him that. So that tells you something about his path. But as we look at how he got there, it's going to be harder and harder for you to hate him. Because when you learn someone's motives, when you learn someone's story, it gets harder to judge them. And so that's what we're going to be doing today is taking a closer look. J Jacob, like many of us who have deep character flaws, the root of his flaws was in his childhood, like many of us. Jacob had this perfect storm of a father who was shallow and distant, and a mother who was overbearing and way too intense. And that never turns out well for anyone who's raised in that setting. I'll share one verse with you from Genesis 25. And in this verse, you will see if you have any like background in therapy or psychoanalysis or anything, like you will see enough family dysfunction in this one verse to write an entire book about. <laughs> and it's simple. Isaac, the father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, the older brother. But Rebecca, the mother, loved Jacob. Now, it's a very simple sentence. There's a lot going wrong there. Isaac not only played favorites, Rebecca played favorites too, but Isaac played favorites for the worst reason, because he liked the food. That was it. 
He liked the fact that Esau was a hunter who brought in wild game. I like to eat wild game. I like you better. And Jacob had to grow up with this. And, you know, no one wants anything more than their parents' approval. And in some special way, we all long for our father's approval, sons and daughters. And so Jacob was no different. He longed for his father's approval and never got it. Esau always did, and Jacob always played second fiddle to his, uh, to his older brother. And so making matters worse for Jacob was his mother who just, uh, Rebecca, I'm trying to give you a picture of who Rebecca was. She had good intentions, I think, but she was so intense about her good intentions that even her good intentions became bad. So Rebecca knew that God had a plan for Jacob, but instead of waiting on God to bring that to fruition, instead of trusting God, she always forced the issue. And she put so much pressure on Jacob that she kind of pushed him to become the person that he became. You'll see that in just a moment. The first passage I'm going to read for you is from Genesis 27. If you want to open your Bible, you can, or just look in the study guides. And uh, you'll start to get a picture for these family dynamics. This might sound painfully familiar to some of us in the room. I'm going to read the first four verses of Genesis 27. All right. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. And Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. I don't know when I'm going to die. Right? So he's almost there. Now, then, get your equipment, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. There it is again. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. I wanted to stop there real quick for those of you that were here last week because I feel like this could be confusing. Last week, we saw the story where Jacob sold, uh, where, where Esau sold his birthright for, what was it? Yeah, stew or soup. Uh, it wasn't a good trade, but Esau was really hungry, I guess, and he sold his birthright. Now, you might be asking if his birthright was already Jacob's, then what are we talking about here? Like, what is this blessing? And this confuses some people. I just want to clear it up. A birthright and a blessing, two different things. A birthright was financial. A birthright was about the family estate. It was security in that way. But the blessing of the father could only be given to one of the sons because the blessing was not financial. It had nothing to do with the estate. It was about legacy. So the, the son that received the blessing from the father was the one who would stand in line in the family tree to carry forward the promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 15, and 18, right? So Abraham was Jacob and Esau's grandfather. God made some tremendous promises to redeem the whole world through Abraham's line, but only one of those two brothers could be the one to carry it forward. So would it be Esau? Would it be Jacob? Esau was the one who was owed that blessing because he was the older brother. Rachel knew because a prophecy was given to her when she was pregnant with these twins that the younger would lead the older. God told her this. And again, she's forcing the issue, as we'll see uh, in just a second. But Esau was the one who was supposed to stand in line and carry that promise forward. Esau is the one we were supposed to be sitting here talking about instead of Jacob 3,000 years after the fact. All right, so uh, I just want to tell you the story of what happened next instead of reading it to you because it's uh, so fascinating. I love telling the story. So in the rest of Genesis 27, we see Rebecca's shady plot. This mom, this overbearing, intense mom, 
Anybody resonate? This overbearing, intense mom has a plan. And she forces Jacob to play along. She tells Jacob, after she, hears, she overhears this conversation between Esau and his father Isaac, she tells Jacob that they're going to steal that blessing while Esau is out hunting. And Jacob's on the fence about it. She's like, nope, go out and get me a goat from the family herd. I'll cook it up just like your father likes. I'll make his favorite dish, she says. Really manipulative. Like, I'll make his favorite dish, and he won't be able to say no. And you're going to take it into him, and you're going to be the one to, uh, to, to get that blessing. And Jacob's like, won't he know that I'm not my brother? And she's like, no, he's blind as a bat. He's blind as a bat. He won't even know. Just lower your voice a little bit. Talk like a man, Jacob. You know, like that kind of stuff. And like... <laughs> and, and go in and he'll never know. He's like, well, what if, he, what if he touches me when he blesses me? And Jacob says, I have smooth skin and my brother Esau is really hairy. What then? And she takes the hide from that goat she killed and she, she, she like ties it around Jacob's arm and attaches it to his chest somehow, which just begs the question, <laughs> How hairy was Esau? Like, that is a lot of hair. Like, I, I said, I, I should have showed y'all this picture. I, I, I sat next to a man on a plane one time whose arm hair reached across the aisle. Like, I took a picture of it. I've got it. I'll, I'll post it on Facebook. I'll show y'all. Uh, y'all just follow me or whatever. I took a picture <laughs> of this man's arm hair. Really scary stuff. And... Uh, Brought new meaning to man spreading. Like it was just uh, uncomfortable for me. And so, uh, how hairy must Esau have been to feel like a goat feels? Uh, <laughs> and so, whatever the case, it worked. Jacob takes the delicious food into his father Isaac's tent. He says, <clears throat> Hello, father, <laughs> it's Esau. <laughs> and, and he gets the blessing. Isaac at first doesn't believe him, and he says, uh, you sound a little different. Are you sick? What's going on? And, he, and, uh, and, and then he falls for it. He touches his arm, and he's like, yep, that's Esau. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he gives the blessing to Jacob. Now, that's it for Jacob. The blessing can only be given once. These were kind of the rules of the day. And so now he's the one who would stand in line to carry the promise God made to Abraham forward to the next generation. That's why we're here talking about Jacob and not Esau. Esau gets home from his hunt prepares the meal, goes into Isaac's tent to get his blessing, and it comes to light. Isaac realizes really quick what's gone wrong, and he knows his wife. He probably knows uh, what's happened. He's been had again. And he tells Esau, and Esau's livid. And Esau says to himself, it says in the, in the, in the story, uh, as soon as my father dies and we're done mourning him, I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to kill him. And word gets back to Rebecca that, uh, that Esau is gonna kill her favorite son. And so she sends him off in the cover of night. She packs him a bag and sends him away to live with her brother, Laban. And then Rebecca goes to her husband on his deathbed and lies through her teeth about why she sent Jacob away. This man's about to die and his son's not gonna be there. Why? She says, I just hate the women in this town and if, if Jacob marries one of these stupid women in this town, I, she says, I would rather die. Actually, she said, 
life is not worth living if he marries one of these girls. And so I'm sending him away where he can meet a nice girl. Super manipulative and gross. You start to kind of get a feeling for how Jacob became the man that he became. I'm just saying. Some of y'all have had that experience of awakening when you've gotten to know your in-laws. Anyway, all right, so I'm going <laughs> to keep on trucking. All right, so I'm going to get in trouble. All right, so uh, uh, the next passage I'm going to read to you is when Jacob has arrived in, his, uh, in Laban's town, and Laban has welcomed him into his house. This is what happens. Genesis 29, verses 15 um, to 30. All right. Laban said to Jacob, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So they're working out a, an arrangement so Jacob can make a living. And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. They didn't have sarcastic quotes back then, but if they did, they would have put some around in love. Uh, Jacob was in love with Rachel. I'll explain that in a minute. I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel, Laban said. It's better that I give her to you than to some other man, which is a very noncommittal thing for a father to say. <laughs> better you than some other loser. That's fine. All right. Uh, so... Um, when you hear a story like this in the Bible, it's very easy to romanticize this. And there are books that have been written about the great love stories of the Bible, and they always include Jacob and Rachel in them. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why. This is not romantic at all. This is delusional at best. Jacob hasn't known Rachel for more than a day. He just got there. He's barely even spoken to her. And... She's his first cousin, which is just really weird. Like, she's his uncle's daughter. I'm from Red Lick. It's less weird for me than for some of y'all. But still, he should have given it some thought. But he falls in love real too, way too fast. Y'all ever known the guy that falls in love way too fast? That guy's always got issues. You ever dated that guy? Some of you are that guy. I'm not going to point you out. But, like, <laughs> you ever dated that guy? The guy who says, I love you on the second date, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Whoa. And then after that date, he goes home and in the middle of the night, he likes every Instagram picture you've ever posted. Like at 3 a.m. And you wake up to 476 likes <laughs> on your Instagram. Whoa, I found myself a Jacob. This is a problem, right? So this is the kind of delusional, erratic, desperate behavior that uh, Jacob demonstrates when he gets to Laban's house, all right? So uh, this is what we know about Rachel, the girl that Jacob falls in love with. She has a lovely figure, which is clearly a reference to her uh, sexual appeal, sexuality, like her sex appeal. So a lovely figure is like Hebrew for a banging body. Like that's, that's what it's trying to say here, truly. Like there's no other reason for them to say she had a lovely figure. She had a great body in Jacob's mind. And she was beautiful, which means she had like the ideal sort of face, facial features, symmetrical, whatever, and everything. And, and he found her incredibly attractive. Now, Leah, on the other hand, the older sister, the only thing we know about her physicality or her body is that she had weak eyes. 
which is also, it's easy to get tripped up there because it seems like she's nearsighted or something. It seems like she's, she can't see as far as her sister. And that's not what it's saying. Um, scholars have kind of debated back and forth what this means over the years. And some say it means that her eyes were just kind of sunken and weird looking. But most scholars now believe that she was cross-eyed. She was like a, a cross-eyed just naturally or something happened in her childhood that caused her to be cross-eyed. And so for that reason and probably a bunch of other reasons physically, she was not as desirable as her little sister um, Rachel had been. Uh, Jacob saw them both and was immediately taken with Rachel. He barely even paid attention to Leah. He saw her figure, he saw her face, and he fell in love. Now, why does Jacob behave this way? Why does anyone behave this way? There's always more under the surface. Consider what's happened to Jacob in his life to this point. I mean, even recently, like right before this, he just left his father on his deathbed and the last thing he did to his father was lie and deceive and cheat and steal. And honor was a huge part of this culture and so he was gonna carry that guilt with him for the rest of his life. And that just carved an emptiness out in his, in his heart. And not even to mention the fact that leading up to that, all he ever wanted was his father's love in the first place. But he never had it. No matter how hard he tried, no matter how hard he tried to be good, to be a good son, his father always loved his brother more than him. And that carved an even bigger hole in his heart. And on top of that, his mom puts all this pressure on him to be the, the one, you know, to, to be the chosen one. And she keeps telling him, you're the, you're the child of promise. No matter what they say, you gotta behave and do these things. And even if they're not the good things to do, like you gotta do them. And all this pressure builds up, carves an even deeper hole in his heart. And now on top of all of that, his his brother wants to kill him, and his brother is a big hairy beast who probably could kill him. And so an even deeper hole in his heart is carved out by that fear. You've got fear, you've got grief, you've got anxiety, you've got inadequacy, you've got shame. Digging holes in his, in his heart and who he is, and he feels empty and desperate to fill that emptiness like so many of us, he tries to fill that emptiness with a form of love that doesn't belong there, in that place. He tries to fill it with coloring. There's kids in the room today, so it's, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. He tries to fill it with, with erotic love, with intimate love, with a woman, with romance. And as we're gonna see in a minute, uh, it left him even emptier. Now, the evidence for Jacob being out of his mind is it's right there in the pages of Scripture. It's in this negotiation that he has with Laban, which isn't even a negotiation. He's, Laban's like, what, what should I pay you? And Jacob's like, I'll work for you for free for seven years if I can just have your daughter. You can almost see the drool coming out of his mouth. It's just really bizarre behavior, especially when you consider, I don't mean to offend anybody's sensibilities about how the patriarchal system worked back in the day, but, but marriage was kind of an economic exchange. It wasn't out of line for him to offer a price in exchange for the privilege of marrying Laban's daughter, but seven years, an exorbitant price. The going rate, historians, archaeologists tell us, for a marriage arrangement was four to six months wages. <laughs> and he says, seven years, no question. You know, Laban, don't fight me on this. You know, like, it doesn't even make sense. And Laban's like, cool, that's fine, let's, let's do it, you know? And, um, and he does it, he's just irrational, he's out of his mind, kind of tail spinning. you get that feeling, because you've been there before too, probably, you've seen people there. 
Let's pick it up from Genesis 29, verses 20 to uh, 25. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. (laughs) This dude is sprung, man. Only a few days to him because of his love for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. It's a really awkward conversation to have with your (laughs) girlfriend's dad. And your uncle at the same time. So Laban, <laughs> so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as an attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. When morning came, there was Leah. Now, I don't feel like I need to explain how this could have happened. It's not out of, out of the possibility, you know, out of the realm of possibility that this could have really happened in real life. If you've ever been to a wedding where people were drinking, you know how this could theoretically happen. If you imagine the craziest wedding you've ever been to, then they would drink all day at these weddings back then, we think, historically. And it was an all-day feast, all-day party, dancing and everything. Imagine the craziest wedding you've ever seen. But the bride is completely covered head to toe, veiled. You can start to see how this could happen. Jacob drank a lot. Uh, At the end of the day, they went into the wedding chambers or whatever. And, you know, they didn't have electricity. He couldn't, like, flip a switch on and check her out. He had to, for lack of a better phrase, he had to feel his way through the situation. And what was done, one person got that. And what was done was done. What was done was done. And he woke up in the morning, and there was Leah. So uh, he runs out of that room and goes to find Laban. And he's like, Laban, how could you? What is this thing you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Remember what the name Jacob means? Deceiver. He literally says, why have you Jacobed me? Jacob got Jacobed. Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Now, this is where it gets fascinating to me, because even if you're not a believer and you don't love the Bible or whatever, you don't think it's the word of God, that's fine. Just look at it from a literary point of view, and this is amazing. This is They should make movies about this stuff. Like it is such a pivot, such a turn, a plot twist. Because it becomes clear to Jacob in the midst of this very short conversation with Laban that uh, he is in the wrong. Jacob comes to Laban, guns blazing. What have you done? How could you? And Laban says like five words. And Jacob's like, all right, cool, I got it. No, it's fine. Uh, You're right. You know, like what changes for Jacob? It's very clear to him as Laban speaks that there are undeniable connections between what Jacob did to his father and what Laban did to him. Undeniable connections. First of all, Laban clearly knows what Jacob did to Esau and to his father Isaac. It's been seven years, you know, so word got around. And he says, he kind of implies like, I don't know how y'all do it where you come from, but around these parts, that's not how we do it. We don't take blessings from the ones to whom they belong and just give them out willy-nilly to somebody else. That's not how we do it here. 
And he's obviously sending uh, a message, right? And Jacob starts to get it uh, loud and clear. He says, uh, we, we don't just give to younger siblings. Y'all see the connection? We don't give to younger siblings the blessing that belongs to the older ones. Imagine how Jacob realizes that all of his demons from his past have finally hunted him down. And these connections are, are, are just there. Jacob took advantage of his father's blindness. Did you notice how it said Isaac had weak eyes in the beginning? Same words, just different meaning because Isaac was blind and Leah had weak eyes in a different way, but those connections are so clearly there. Right? So, uh, and, and in the same way, Laban took advantage of Jacob's drunkenness and the darkness in the room even. You know, Jacob pretended to be somebody else to get something that wasn't his. And so did Leah. She pretended to be somebody else to get something that wasn't necessarily hers, but should have been hers. Right? So you see all of these connections, um, you, you know, uh, about the blessing that was stolen or reclaimed. It's all just right there. And so Jacob knows and he's convicted. And in this next part of the story, the plot shifts. And I want you to see how the plot shifts. The spotlight goes away from Jacob and onto Leah. In a really powerful way, Leah becomes the star of the story in a way that shocks people who think the Bible is really patriarchal and bad to women and all this stuff. Like Leah is one of the most underappreciated people in the whole like narrative of scripture. And here we go. Genesis 29 verses 31 to 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, and surely my husband will love me now. You hear that? She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. And again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah which means praise. And then Leah stopped having children. I love Leah. I love her story and her strength because I think she has so much to teach us. Can you imagine? Maybe some of you really can, like some of you are living this. Always feeling inadequate never feeling accepted or acceptable or loved or lovable, always feeling envious towards somebody else close to you who has way more than you, who has it all. And everybody else wants them. And you walk into a room together and it's like you're not even there because everybody else just sees them. 
Leah was like the original sort of ugly duckling story, you know, like nobody paid attention to her because she was undesirable. She was unattractive. She was ugly. And here she is doing her very best to be the woman she was supposed to be, doing everything a woman was supposed to do. She was faithful to her husband, even though he didn't love her. She just stayed true to him and wanted nothing more than for him to love her. She gave him three sons, which was then like the best thing a woman could do for her husband. I know that's an awful like patriarchal thing from the past, but that's the world she lived in. And she's like, I gave you three sons and still you don't love me. What more can I do to be accepted? And even that first night together, it's so easy for us. It's easy for me as a man to put myself in, in Jacob's shoes and be like, wow, what an awful morning that must have been for Jacob. Because he woke up and there was Leah. Psst, poor Jacob. Can you see that from Leah's point of view? Like, can you imagine how humiliating that must have been to her? How degrading that her father had to dress her up like her sister to trick a man into loving her? <laughs> Do you know Leah? Have you ever felt like her? Leah stands for two things in this story. She embodies two important concepts. And the first one feels crass. It's going to feel like I'm piling on to Leah, but you're going to see what I mean. The first one is this, and it has more to do with Jacob, because Jacob lived for Rachel. All he wanted was Rachel's embrace. He wanted her body. He wanted her face. He wanted her love. And he thought she was the one that was going to take away all that emptiness in his life. She was the one who was going to fix all that brokenness. And then she had him. He had her. And, and it was Leah. Just wasn't what he thought it would be. And I guess there's a message there for us that anytime you've got an emptiness that life has carved out in you, grief, shame, fear, whatever, and you try to fill that emptiness with somebody, even if it's a marriage or spouse, you'll wake up next to Leah. It will always, always be Leah. I don't mean that as a... An insult to Leah, all I mean is that hype, it's fake. The real thing will never live up to the ideal that you had in your mind. And it will affect your marriage in ways you didn't anticipate. Because you've levied all of these expectations onto your spouse or onto your kids or onto your life, your happiness, your house, whatever, to fill that void in you and it's still not filled. So I think Leah's story begs the question, like, what stuff are you trying to fill the hole in your heart with? How might you be punishing those close to you with unreasonable expectations of what they can do for you? Because that is a hole only God can fill. Now, the other thing Leah shows us, I think, is an image 
of the gospel. Leah embodies the gospel. I think that is why God not only loved her, he chose her. Because it was Leah, as we're told later in Genesis, it was Leah whose son was given Jacob's blessing. After Jacob finally grows up in his old age, he finally becomes a man, and he finally leaves behind his selfish ways, and he finally leaves behind his immaturity and his self-absorption, he passes his blessing along, not to the eldest son, and not to Rachel's sons, Joseph, who's famous, Joseph and the dream coat guy. He didn't get the blessing, Judah did. Making Judah the father of the promise. Making Leah a mother of the promise. Why? Why did God choose Leah, the ugly one? The one no one wanted. The outcast, the reject, the one who was cross-eyed and undesirable. Why? Is God just an old softy? Did he just feel sorry for her? There's more going on. There's more going on here. Jesus, the one who Revelation refers to as the lion of the tribe of Leah's boy, Judah. Jesus, Isaiah tells us, was ugly too. Jesus was hideous to look at, according to the prophet. Jesus was unaccepted too. Jesus was unloved too. Jesus was rejected. Jesus knew what that looked like. God didn't choose Leah to be the mother of his promise because he felt sorry for her. He chose her because she better reflected his heart and who he is. He has always been this way, Old Testament and new. He has always been saving, calling, choosing, loving those most unlovable in the eyes of the world. In fact, he's so much that way that he came to the earth that way. Not like Matthew McConaughey or like, you know, like a big bad guy, like fancy looking model guy, Adonis muscled up guy. No, hideous to the eyes, unwanted by most. God with us. Like Leah. So what's that mean? It means we. Worshiping God today in the most affluent part of a very affluent city, in a very affluent country, in a very affluent time on planet Earth. We who fight for approval and recognition, we have to be very careful. Because if we choose to be Rachel instead of Leah, we miss out. If you choose to appear self-sufficient, in need of nothing, never vulnerable, never weak, never ugly, you will miss out 
on the promises of Jesus. Because his gospel is for all of us, but it will only be internalized and accepted by those of us who know we need a savior. And until you see the ugliness within you, until you're honest enough with yourself to see the parts of you that are truly undesirable, until you look in the mirror and see something that no one could love, and in that moment you realize that God loves even that part of you, there you find the power of the gospel, not in strength, but in weakness. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And so no matter what you have, what your net worth is, what your bank account says, what your zip code says, what you're driving, what other people think of you, whether you're married, single, divorced, or anywhere in between, no matter what your life looks like, get on your knees and pray to God like the sinner that you are. Not so you can feel bad about yourself and keep coming to church and, you know, all that stuff. It's not about that stuff. It's about getting your heart in a place of humility and receptivity before God who loves you and chooses you even though no one else would want you if they knew the stuff God knows. Be careful. Brothers and sisters, be careful to avoid the traps of self-sufficiency and perfection. It's a lie. Tell everybody that you know, everybody who knows you, or they think they do, tell everybody in your life how imperfect you are and what God's grace has meant to you and how he sets you free You'll be free indeed. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, your promises are true and everlasting, and we, we struggle to understand them sometimes. We'd rather be Rachel than Leah. We'd rather be strong than weak. We'd rather be beautiful than ugly. We'd rather keep up appearances than be real. Free us from that evil cycle. God, help us to be real with you alone. We invite you now, God, through your Holy Spirit to fill the spaces in our hearts that have been carved out by family trauma and dysfunction, grief and fear, anger and loss, and shame, most of all. Set us free to be your chosen ones called for a purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.